riders of the storm Into this house we're born Into this world we're thrown Like a dog without a bone Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special bonus episode of The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen, and I'm the managing editor of SlashFilm.com. I'm also the host of the Slash Filmcast, and joining me today, he is the man who played Ned Ryerson in Groundhog Day, Stephen <laughs> oh! Tobolowski. Oh, man, you saved it for the bonus. Exactly. Yeah. Stephen. How are you doing today, sir? I am doing so good, David. I'm doing so good. Um, I think people, I, I want to explain a little bit what this story is, because I'm going to save any Groundhog's Day story for a podcast in the second season. I started getting, you know, every, I figure everybody's heard Groundhog's Day talk to death, so I'll, I'm going to save it for a podcast. But I want to talk a little bit about this story, is that I wanted to write a new story that introduces me. This is this is for people who haven't, who don't know who I am necessarily, and haven't been following the Tobolowsky files. Cursed beyond them. Gotcha. Um, well, you know, Stephen, we should say that uh, despite the fact that this episode appears between episode uh, seasons one and two, it is actually a canonical episode. So it's not non-canonical. As, yes, uh, it is canonical. Yes, it's very canonical. Very canonical. And I'm very, very happy of you to say it was canonical. Very good. So, so just want does that to know. mean cone-like or or? Uh, I think you're thinking of conical. So yeah, okay. Um, okay. But yeah, no, this is a very canonical episode. So uh, don't don't feel cheated out of an actual episode. If anything, right. like you said, this is the most canonical episode ever. So right. Why did we choose to release it as a bonus episode? I don't know, but. That's the case. That's right. I, I, I actually could use it as the first episode of the next series, but uh, I've already written that, so we'll see. All right. Well, let's rock and roll, Stephen. Tell okay, us. Take man. us all the way back to the beginning. I will. Uh, the name of this episode is Fuck, uh, an introduction. Uh, that's F-A-Q, by the way, the, the way it's spelled. And the first Fuck I ever... Uh, I The first... <laughs> The first fuck I had was, what does F-A-Q mean? And I just found out this year, and I'm embarrassed to say, David, you know what this means, right? Uh, I do know what it means, and I believe it's actually pronounced fuck, but whatever. I'm not going to... Okay. Well, that's good to know, because I didn't know that. It's frequently asked questions. Now, I've been interviewed for a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, over the many years, and people in the press would usually begin and say they want to throw out some fuck at me. And I was embarrassed to ask what it was because it sounded dirty, and it also sounded like something maybe you would find in a monkey cage. And finally, I asked a very friendly interviewer from Australia what it was, thinking that if it was dirty, he at least was on a different continent. Once I jumped the hurdle, I became very interested in FAQ frequently asked question, not the question part of it, but the frequently part of it. Because I would find that I would hear FAQ, FAQ, and I would go, really? These are the questions people ask a lot? Why? You know, as an actor, I'm in the business of asking questions. And whenever I get a script, I'm always amazed by what writers think is important to know. 
for example, a script will say, Betsy Davenport, lawyer, 35, attractive. This would be our initial foray into Betsy's Fox, the, the quick answer. But of course, all of this information is completely without meaning. As an actor, I would ask, is she a good lawyer or bad lawyer? Does she come from a family of lawyers, or is she the first person in her family with a graduate degree? Does she like country-western music? Did she really want to become a vet? The list goes on and on of questions with more meaning that are not frequently asked. And don't even get me started with attractive. So my fact. My name is Stephen Tobolowsky. My height is 6'3". My weight is 205. I was born in Dallas, Texas in 1951. I'm a professional actor, and that's unusual. And actually, I work in show business. That's even more unusual. So you can never be too sure when an actor says they're working what that really means. Case in point, I did summer stock in upstate New York in 1972. Jack who shall remain nameless, left our fold and wrote back that he had gotten a job on Broadway in Pippin. He said that the next time we were in the city, we should come and see the show and come back by the stage door afterwards and say hello. My girlfriend Beth and I took him up on this offer a couple months later, and we went to see Pippin. It was all very nice, but Jack was nowhere to be seen. We went back to the stage door and asked for him, and the guard nodded, and called back for Jack, who showed up wearing elbow-length black rubber gloves. We told him we enjoyed the show, but missed him on stage. I asked if he was in the chorus. Beth asked if he was dressed up like a tree or a mushroom. Jack was not amused. He said he never claimed he was in the show. He said he worked on the show. His job, truth, he was in charge of giving the animals that appeared on stage enemas before the performance. <laughs> Pause. You know, there have been very few times in my life when I have been rendered speechless. And I think in this case, it required the perfect combination of horror, surprise, and wondering how much the job paid and if they offered it to me, would I take it? Jack was rightfully offended by whatever look we had on our faces. But then he hit us with the now classic rejoinder, hey, at least I'm on Broadway. I learned never trust an actor when they say they're working. But me, Stephen Tobolowsky, I work. I've been in over 100 movies and 200 television shows. You would recognize me if you saw me in line at a coffee shop. Not necessarily as an actor. There's a 50-50 chance you might think I was the guy who used to work in the coffee shop making you your latte. Or a science teacher at your high school. Or the man who sold your parents insurance. In Canada, one man came up to me on the street thinking we had played ice hockey together. One of the facts I get is, does this anonymity bother you? I have to say, I generally find it amusing. I was at a premiere of my film, Stephen Tobolowsky's Birthday Party, at the HBO Comedy Festival in Aspen in 2005. And as a sociological experiment, I asked strangers on the street if they had heard of Stephen Tobolowsky. They all had. One man said he had just read about Stephen Tobolowsky that morning, that he was a serial killer in Denver that was about to be released from prison, and there was a huge protest. 
Another said that he thought Stephen Tobolowsky was the real name of a popular porn star. He thought someone named Rick Hot Rod Rocket. I was unfamiliar with Mr. Rocket's work, so I moved on. One woman had a kinder but equally incorrect view of the universe. She thought Stephen Tobolowsky was either a financial expert or a physicist who just discovered something new about time. I like that one. Time has always interested me. We always tend to think of time as a line of past, present, and future, but I don't think we experience it that way. In our lives, memory rarely serves as a measurement of time, but as a measurement of meaning. The exciting thing about time and memory is how completely unpredictable they are. Like the questions on the street in Aspen, you never know what you're going to get. In life, we never really know what event will rise to the level of significance. The strangest, smallest things can become your evening star, your source of guidance or inspiration. One of my facts is, what was it like to perform on Broadway for the first time? Answer to tell you the truth? My opening night on Broadway in 1982 is very hard to remember. You, you would think, being an actor, that that event would be my evening star. But it's not. Quite unpredictably, getting on Broadway is dwarfed by two memories that happened to me when I was five. Two memories that together make up ten minutes of my life 50 years ago. But I've never been asked what events in your life come to mind most frequently. So I'll take this opportunity to answer it. I was about five. I just proposed to the first girl I ever proposed to in my life, Alice Nell Allen. She was also five. I ran home and told my mother I was getting married and would probably be leaving home soon to start a family of my own. Mom took the news rather well. I ran out the back screen door, across our backyard, and into the world at large. I was excited as only a young man in love could be. I wanted to give my mother a gift to thank her for her kindness and her support during my early years. Behind our house in Oak Cliff, Texas, was a tangle of wildness. There were fields and woods and a creek where it was rumored there were many poisonous snakes. But there was also a meadow that covered an entire block that was filled with the most beautiful flowers I'd ever seen in my life. They were red and yellow and orange. I ran barefooted through that field at sundown to pick my mother a bouquet. I came running back into the kitchen. Mom was still baking dinner, and I offered her my gift. She looked at me and continued washing the chicken, and she said, Stevie, honey, those are just weeds. Those aren't nice flowers that you give to someone. Throw them away. I couldn't touch them. Mother took them out of the glass of water I had set them in and tossed them into the trash. I was devastated and deeply embarrassed. My mother, who was truly one of the kindest people I've ever known, could not have understood what those flowers meant to me. In my little life, they were the most beautiful things I had ever known, and I wanted to share that beauty with her. What made this story almost biblical was a week later, those lots where the field of wildflowers were, were sold and plowed over. They started building homes on that land, and those flowers never returned. I looked for them for years. They were gone. That was the last time I saw those reds, yellows, and oranges by our home. They had entered the realm of memory, 
and became a sort of evening star that warned me to protect what I loved. Another story that mattered to me comes from the same distant era, and I'm afraid I'm going to have to explain ancient history here. (laughs) Back then in the early 1950s, kids walked. We walked everywhere. Or we ran, we rode bikes, we were on our own a lot. I remember I walked down to Doherty's Drugstore to read comic books. Texas, which is always prone to sudden and dangerous shifts of weather, I noticed the sky had darkened, and I thought I should head home. I didn't want to get caught in a thunderstorm. I walked quickly down the bumpy, tar-covered two-lane affair that was the main road in our part of the world, Keese Boulevard, and I saw something ahead that upset me, a sort of what's wrong with this picture moment. A car was on the side of the road, tipped sideways. Scientists have determined that children as young as two could sense when they're being lied to. I don't know about that. That would create a pretty cynical read on Santas and department stores. But if you flip that finding around, I do believe that children from an early age can sense when something is wrong. And something was very wrong on the road. I ran toward the wreck to investigate. There was steam coming from the radiator, and out of the corner of my eye, I saw a movement. I turned, and I froze with terror. There was a man lying by the side of the road. He was wearing light blue pants, light blue shirt. He had a black belt with a silver buckle. I stopped about 10 feet from him and stared. He could hardly talk, but he whispered coarsely to me. He said, buddy, come here. I obeyed and I walked up to him. He said, help me here. I need to sit up. I knelt beside the man. I put my arms around him and slowly helped him. He didn't have the strength to sit. I kept holding him. He said, thanks, buddy. I can't be lying down there like that. A sudden stream of blood flowed from his mouth onto his blue shirt. I gasped and said, you're bleeding. He said, don't worry, buddy. I'm okay. I don't hurt at all. So don't be scared. I may need to ask you a favor. I trembled, but I said, yes, sir. He said, I may need you to find my daughter. Her name is Diane. I may need you to tell her that I'm okay. I said, yes, sir. And I heard the sounds of tires screeching on the road and footsteps running, and a grown man in a light-colored jacket came up to me and said, What happened? I said, I found him here. The injured man looked around at the scene. The other car stopped. More help ran over, and he turned to me and said, Buddy, I guess you could go home now. I, I said, What about your daughter, Diane? He said, Don't worry. It'll all be fine. I handed off my charge to those more capable and looked down at the man once more, and he looked up at me with pale blue eyes and said, And buddy, don't be afraid. Another question that's on my facts is, have I ever been afraid since that day? The answer is yes, often. When I was held hostage at gunpoint in a grocery store, the first time I made love, Just about every audition I ever had, and yes, the opening night on Broadway in 1982. Countless times. The list is too long. But I still see that man dressed in light blue, broken, 
in need of a doctor and worried for his daughter, and yet he spent a moment to quiet the fears of a child that happened to meet him by the side of the road. Another fact that is never asked is, what was one of the happiest moments in my life? Well, they're all the expected ones. When I fell in love, the birth of my children, the second marriage to my wife, Anne. But I intend these stories to chronicle the answers to questions that I've never mentioned. And here's one. One of the happiest moments, one that I've never shared before. It's about 10 years ago. It was one of those down periods of my life where happiness was very hard to come by. And I was, went back to Dallas to visit my family. I thought family usually makes things better. Or not. My brother took me on a bike ride to White Rock Lake to have breakfast with his friends. I had not ridden a bike in ages. It was a beautiful day, and the air was cool and clear. I felt like I was flying. We crested a hill, and it took my breath away. There before my eyes were my wildflowers. Acres and acres and acres of them in every direction, red, yellow, orange, as far as the eye could see. They were never gone. I just thought they were. I smiled for the first time in months, knowing that they were probably there all along. I had just never ridden on the right path to see them. Another fact I'm never asked is, what motivates you? The answer, the mystery. It is a mystery that makes us do what we do. It's the other side of the mystery as to what makes us who we are. One of my favorite philosophers, Epictetus, said that the only things we could control in our lives is what we're drawn to and what we are repelled by. Somewhere between the last field of wildflowers and the words of comfort from a dying man, there was something I was drawn to. I'm guessing it was the same thing that made me want to become an actor and probably the same thing that made me want to tell you these stories. Telling a story is my way of living up to the high standards created for me by that woman in Aspen, to be the physicist who's come up with something new about time. It's the only way I know to make a sense of the unpredictable. It's the only way I know to search for Diane. That was FAC, a story told by Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, you want to tell people how they can reach you during this interim period between yes. seasons one and seasons two. This, and by the way, David, I want to thank you for teaching me how to pronounce FAC because I would have kept saying fuck, which, uh, which is bad. You're welcome. Thank you're welcome. you. I would have gotten me in trouble. I think it would have so, taken away some of the gravitas from the end of that story. <laughs> Anyway, people can get a hold of me during this interim period while I'm busy writing at stephentobolowski at gmail.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-T as in Tom, O-B as in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y at gmail.com. Also, at twitter.com slash Tobolowski and at Facebook. And David, what's that Facebook thing? Facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowski. That's the official 
Facebook page of Stephen Tobolowsky. I love it. Well, I think that'll be all. Uh, I, I'm not going to tell people how, how they can find me because this is a bonus episode, so we've got to keep things short. But let's wrap things up and just say that uh, Season 2 of The Tobolowsky Files will begin in May 2010. And in the meantime, tell your friends, tell your family, write to congressmen about The Tobolowsky <laughs> Files, uh, <laughs> spread the word, write a review for us on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. That's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of The Tobolowsky Files. We hope you enjoyed FAC. And uh, know that it heralds the beginning, not only of Stephen's life, but also of other great things for the Topolowski Files in the future. At least we hope so. Uh, and that's deliberately vague for you. Anyway, all right, I'm going to stop now. See you guys later. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>